and the glory forever. Amen. systematically, and if you would, would you uh, stand if you're able for the reading of scripture. We begin in Mark uh, chapter 3, verse 7. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, let your word accomplish what you intend in giving it to us today. Just as the rain comes down and waters the ground and brings forth uh, crops and so feeds us. May we be fed and strengthened, challenged, and, and Lord, once again, uh, receive uh, your word into our beings. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. He went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve from whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boandres, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, and Simon the Canaanian and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. Then in verse 31, and his mother and brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother sister and mother. You can take your seats. In 1988, we were living in South Carolina in a little town called Lancaster, and Hurricane Hugo, which was a Category 4 storm, uh, came in far in went all the way to the central part of the state, and it passed over uh, our little town as a Category 1 uh, storm. It happened in the middle of the night. The winds howled. In fact, it sounded like a locomotive was approaching. 
transformers exploded and we saw the flashes of uh, light. There were many uh, small tornadoes that were spun off and concrete block buildings were blown up, large swaths of pine trees were cut off at about six uh, feet. When we woke up, we lived in a disaster area. We'd never done that uh, before. And the power lines had been shredded. And we realized very quickly that uh, what we had in the refrigerator and freezer was not going to be cooled again for some uh, time. And so, of course, we ate what we could. We, like our neighbors, were very glad to be alive, having experienced uh, the storm. And people opened up their freezers and offered uh, steaks and venison um, because they too knew they couldn't possibly eat what they uh, had. There was just such a kindness for a couple of days. Now we had small children and they needed milk and we could buy milk but we had actually no way uh, to keep it cool. And uh, I heard a rumor, that's all we had were rumors because there were absolutely no radio stations in, in South Carolina that we could uh, receive broadcasting that there was ice on the east side of town, and I drove out there, and there was, I don't know, 30, 40, maybe 50 people gathered around the truck, and as ice was being passed around, you could just feel the desperation in the crowd. The look on people's faces uh, was uh, filled with, well, it was ugly, and it was filled with anger, and I felt afraid. I actually don't remember if I stayed to get ice or not. Mark tells us that crowds followed Jesus. And uh, he tells us in between the crowds that Jesus calls 12 to be a new community. He intentionally is contrasting the crowds in this new community. The crowds and his family are actually outsiders. They think they're close to Jesus, but actually they are not. And the uh, 12 who were called actually are insiders. This is one of Mark's themes, and we'll see it again and again in the next uh, several chapters. The first crowd that is described in verse 7 contains desperate people who want to be healed. They are pressing on Jesus, uh, surging toward him, wanting to touch him. It's so much pressure that Jesus tells his disciples to have a boat ready lest he be crushed. The, the crowds clamor for Jesus. Now, it's a very, very large uh, crowd. It's drawn uh, far beyond just uh, uh, Jerusalem and Judea. People as far uh, south as Idumeum, which was 120 miles uh, from Capernaum, as far uh, north as Sidon, which was 50 miles as east from Tyre, uh, came. And they were very diverse ethnically. There were Jews, but from Idumea and the Transjordan, there was a mixture of Jews and Gentiles, and Tyre and Sidon probably were almost completely Gentiles. And Mark wants us to understand why it is they're drawn. In this very short summary, he tells it's, it's the healing and deliverances that Jesus is doing. We, you know, have often uh, these pictures of Jesus and his ministry surrounded by little children and lambs. That's not what it was like. These are desperate uh, crowds, uh, and he's hassled uh, by uh, critics. The ministry of 
uh, Jesus to the crowds fulfills the word of the prophet Isaiah, which said, speaking of the servant, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And that's what's happening. And Jesus is attentive to their misery. He's compassionate. But the clamoring of the crowds is not a response of faith. Their pressuring to touch him is not an expression of the faith that Jesus seeks to elicit. What do you want from Jesus? Do you know? One way, perhaps, to think about it is, what do you think will make you happy? Daniel Gilbert is a professor of psychology, and his area of research is what's called positive psychology. One of the topics he's uh, researched is effective forecasting. That is, they're trying to find out how it is that we predict uh, what we think will make us happy and whether our predictions are accurate. And uh, his research has led to uh, the conclusion that uh, we're not very good at forecasting our uh, happiness. Um, we tend to overestimate uh, the intensity and duration of our responses to things. You know, everybody who's bought a new car has experienced this. You think that car is going to make you happy? Some of you have may even spent too much money on a car because you thought that would make you really happy. And it doesn't take a long for the newness of that car uh, to, uh, well, not to bring about the happiness you anticipated. What this means is, is that uh, we tend to make uh, bad decisions because we're wrong about what actually will make us happy and make for lasting happiness in our lives. It's pretty sobering to think about that. It may seem like trivial to say, well, of course, a car won't make you uh, happy. But really, a lot of our decisions about all sorts of things, from our education and career to marriage, can be traced back to mistaken beliefs that we have about what it is that will make us happy. The truth is, is that spending our whole lives chasing what we want is not the best way to achieve happiness. Jesus comes to speak to the crowds primarily about the kingdom of God. That's the primary focus of his ministry, and not the healing and the deliverances that they uh, seek after. What do you think will make you happy? What is it that you're pursuing? Jesus said putting his kingdom first is the only thing that will produce lasting joy and enduring happiness in your life. In the next paragraph, beginning in verse 13, Jesus goes up on a mountain. It's the place of revelation and encounter with God in the Old Testament. And he calls the 12. He calls those he wants and they come. Jesus calls the 12 one for each of the 12 original tribes of Israel. Just as Jesus uh, led Israel out uh, to Mount Sinai and God made a covenant with them and made them into a nation, his special and treasured possession. So Jesus goes up on a mountain and summons 12 uh, apostles to be with him. He's 
constituting a new Israel. You see, the old Israel had failed to live in covenant with God, did not live faithfully uh, with God. And so God sent them into exile, and in fact, at Jesus' time, there were only two and a half of the tribes left. But now, as the prophets had promised, he creates a new Israel. That's why there's 12. One apostle for each of the 12 tribes. And this new Israel will fulfill the destiny of the first Israel to be a gift to the peoples of the world, a source of life and hope. Jesus calls them, they came, and he appointed them. Actually, appointed means literally made. Now, disciples in that day ordinarily chose the teacher they followed, kind of the way students choose what college to attend. But that's not what Jesus does. He determines who will follow him. His call supersedes their wills. And this is a picture of what we call sovereign grace. The new community Christ is a building on which the 12 play a foundational role is created by his summons. His sovereign calls the one thing they all have in common. And without it, the new Israel cannot exist. And while they do play a unique role in God's plan, the pattern of their call and ours is the same. Jesus summons and we come. Now, if you feel like that excludes you, let me just ask, do you desire to be with Jesus? Are you willing uh, to hear uh, his word and act on it? If so, you can be confident that you're being called. These desires to be his disciple come from his sovereign, enabling grace. So don't get sidetracked in trying to figure out, has his grace worked in me? Just come to him and follow. Now Jesus is the sole and exclusive subject of the call. Not even the scriptures, the, the Torah is more important than Jesus. Unlike the rabbis, Jesus is not a means to a higher good, knowing the scriptures. No, he himself is the highest good. And so he appointed them so that they might be with him. Jesus himself is the curriculum. And so they must be with him. They must spend time with him. They will learn from him in relationship. Relationship's the primary way of shaping us. That's oh, si significant. It's so significant. And this is where the word disciple, which probably you all know, means learner or student, might mislead us. Because when we think about learning, we mostly think about accumulating knowledge and, and perhaps some skills. But the kind of student and learning Jesus has in mind here is better captured with the word apprentice. Discipleship is relational, then verbal and behavioral. To be with him, to preach and deliver. Relational, verbal, and behavioral. Jesus is with them to make them and form them into his apprentices. And this has many, many implications uh, for us. And the very first one, I want to uh, raise this question with you. Where are you spending your time? Who or what is shaping you? 
The answer for most of us is our screens. Have you ever done that, added up how many time, how many hours a day or a week you're spending looking at your phone, your tablet, your laptop, or your uh, TV? I dare say that, um, well, for most of us, it's three or four hours every day. And for many people, it's much more than that. You see, church is just one voice uh, among many speaking into our lives. Podcasts, radio shows, cable news, social media, streaming, entertainment is speaking into our lives, well, a far greater volume than what happens here on Sunday morning in the two or three hours that we might be uh, together. Sunday mornings are essential but they cannot compete with screen time or your internet browser. For all the good content, and there's wonderful content out on the internet, there are millions of fierce wolves uh, who threaten uh, uh, God's flock, who threaten us. My point's this. Our use of the internet is shaping what we value and our imagination about what it means to be human. Let me just develop this thought for a moment. A compelling vision for human sexuality is streaming every day. It portrays the life we should desire. We should have a satisfying sex life, and not to have it is to be missing something essential. It's to be less than fully human. And to be authentic as a human being means you must act on your sexual desires as they come and with whomever is willing. And this vision is packaged up by professional video and emotionally engaging stories. And in that way, it captures our imaginations. And it's no wonder when the church a few times a year uh, teaches that God's vision and intention for human sexuality mirror his pursuit of his bride in humanity in an exclusive covenantal relationship. And so that human sexuality should mirror this. It is to be between two unlike parties, male and female, just as it is in God's pursuit of his bride with humanity. And it's to be in a committed, exclusive covenantal relationship, which is, of course, marriage. The talk given at church simply doesn't have the impact or the frequency or the emotional and visible appeal that the vision on our screens has. Our imaginations are not captured in the same way or to the same degree by God's vision for human sexuality. And so it is that, in fact, most of the students growing up in church no longer act on that vision of sexuality. And the cost is high for them. So you can appreciate, if you've been able to take that in, that our discipleship has to include our media habits. And our formation of, as disciples has to go beyond Sunday morning. In fact, Carl Truman uh, comments in one of his books, it's very unlikely that in any period of human history that Sunday morning was enough to actually form us into disciples. 
And today, it, we compete to form disciples in a world filled with extraordinary visual images. You see, church has to be more than simply a vehicle to convey uh, content. If Jesus prioritizes being with him and having time in relationships, we must too. We need time not just with our Bible and sermons, but in relationships. We need to be informative relationships. And Sunday morning's not enough for that to take place. We need one-on-one -on -one relationships. We need relationships in small groups that are intentionally seeking to shape us into Christ's apprentice. Jesus forms a new family. It's begins, the story of this happens in verses 20 and 21, and then Luke intrudes another, excuse me, Mark intrudes another story in it, and it picks up in verse 31. We'll look at that story next week. But the scene advances, and Jesus heads home, and the crowd gathers. Their, their demands are such that Jesus and his followers can't even find time to eat, and his family sees what's going on. And they decide an intervention is called for. He's lost his mind. The crowds, the conflicts with the religious leaders, uh, the lack of caring for uh, basic physical needs add up to them to one uh, all reasonable solution. They need to seize him, pull him out, talk some sense into him, or deprogram him, as we might say. And... Uh, his mom and brothers stand outside and call to him, and their message is relayed to Jesus, and his response seems rather cold to us. Who are my mother and brothers? And then he looks around the room, and he says, here's my family. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Now, Jesus is not abandoning his family. He's not utterly forsaking uh, them and breaking all contact, like many cults call people to do. Following Jesus doesn't call you to reject your family. Jesus will care for his uh, mother and trusting her uh, to John while he's on the cross. But what he is saying here is that his family does uh, not understand him and does not have the claim they think they do on his life. Even Mary has got this wrong. How could that be? Well, Mary's heart and mind is filled with the popular ideas about what the Messiah must uh, be. And it won't be until Jesus dies and is raised from the dead that any human being in the Gospel of Mark will actually understand fully who he is. There are two things that we need to take away from this. And one is that Jesus' apprentices will prioritize loyalty to him and his claim on their lives over the claims of family. Now, Christ's followers are to honor their parents, they're to serve their families, and if need be, support their parents in old age. But Jesus' family is not in the relationship they think. They think they're insiders, that they have a special and exclusive claim on his life, and that's not true. Jesus is redefining family here. He's creating a new family that is not based on blood. And in this day and time in which Jesus lives, this is hard for people to imagine. Of course, your primary uh, uh, commitment was to family 
Blood is thicker than everything else. And the second thing I want you to notice here that has large implications for us in the making of disciples is that the church has too often had a narrow and limited view of what it means to follow Jesus and what it is to do his will. And often what this has led to is describing following Christ as just doing a, a few church-related, what we might call sacred activities, though I don't like that language. You know, worshiping, reading your Bible, praying, uh, living out the Ten Commandments, loving God and neighbors, leaving actually uh, much of the life that's lived outside of uh, that alone, as if it had no implications uh, for us being a disciple. You see, we need a fuller and more robust picture of what it is to be a disciple. A disciple is being with Jesus, speaking his message, and acting in his name. It's relational, it's verbal, it's behavioral. And sure, it includes communicating the gospel, but it's much, much more than that. I've uh, put a little handout in your, well, in your uh, worship folder, and um, it's too much for me to read and have you take it in. But on one side, there's, there is a diagram that uh, uh, the president of my seminary uh, wrote in a book about the church that deals with what is known as the ordinary uh, office or the general office of the believer. So if this is the idea of offices is new to you, the way to think about it is like this. Jesus is a prophet, a priest, and a king. He has the office of prophet, priest, and king. And so as a prophet, he engages in the ministry of the word. As a priest, he engages in the ministry of mercy. And as a king, he has a ministry of order. He gives commands. And the special offices, pastors, elders, deacons, have, have uh, these ministries. And so does everyone who's a Christ follower. Every Christ follower engages in the ministry of the word, in praising God and worship. We've been uh, doing that. In singing to each other, we've been uh, doing that. And a ministry to the world, in sharing the good news about Christ with other people. But we also have a ministry of uh, mercy, praying for God's mercy and blessing on our enemies, and showing uh, mercy and forgiving hurts and wounds and dealing gently with weaknesses and uh, as well as sharing physical resources, especially in the body of Christ, and acting to promote mercy and justice through deed uh, ministry. And there's a ministry of order as well. And it's actually the ministry to the world that the church tends to be the weakest in. We just really don't take that part very seriously. We don't spend time developing it, especially the, the box that's in the bottom right-hand corner. What it means to bring the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ over all human efforts, work, art, uh, business, and so on. If we were to ask how it is that Jesus makes disciples, and how are we trying to do this as a church, we would actually find many, many contrasts. Jesus' way of making disciples is a Hebrew way it focuses on action and doing, it's concrete, and it's integrated into a context. 
after all, Jesus goes around for three years with these men. They, they live together. Our Greek way is thinking words and ideas tends to be abstract, and it's uh, actually mostly lacking content. Here's what I mean. So we need to teach about marriage, and there's really a great, great deal to teach about uh, marriage. And once you start to see that really so much of the Bible speaks to this, well, there's a vast amount. And, uh, but we tend to try to do all of that in the context of a sermon or a classroom. And we can actually only give uh, principles and perhaps some illustrations. But to be discipled in our marriages, we need living examples. We need to see what it looks like to live out the Christian vision of marriage with real people. It's especially important in the early years of the marriage to have those who will mentor you. And I strongly encourage those of you who've been married under five years to get a couple to mentor you, to meet with them occasionally, and to have frank conversations about the challenges and struggles uh, you uh, meet. You see, you need people in your lives, even when you're older, if you're married, who you can talk to about the challenges you face, where you can have a confidential uh, conversation. See, what we do in church is we tell you what to do, and then we send you out the door expecting you to do it. We just delegate. We direct, and we delegate. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus did show and tell with his disciples. He supported and coached. He trained them. That's why they went on this road trip uh, for three years and why he sends them out and puts them in places and situations that are very challenging for them. They got very uncomfortable uh, being apprenticed to Jesus. You see, if we want to see formation in depth in people, then we have to find a better way. We need to have... Uh, well, a simple definition of what it looks like to be a disciple, and there's a very provisional one on the other side of this sheet of paper. But we need some things we can get our hands on to get started in this, even though uh, it would take a lot uh, to express all the implications of being a disciple. Jesus calls us to a new way of living. He's seeking to apprentice us and shape us as a kingdom agents. Kingdom living is comprehensive. It captures every aspect of our lives, every endeavor, every relationship. Are you pressing on to maturity if you're a Christian? If you've been following Christ for many years, are you pouring your life into somebody else? Are you giving yourself away? Uh, walking uh, with them, alongside of them, in a deepening relationship. Friends, it takes a church to make a disciple. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, may you uh, be pleased uh, to lead us uh, further into what Christ is calling us here. Give us uh, wisdom. Help us to receive what we've heard today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.